uh, you may recognize this if you get the DIG email. Uh, uh, Grace sent this out earlier. Uh, this is a book, Exploring the Earliest Gospel. Uh, it's geared for parents to be able to help their children walk through the gospel according to Mark. Um, so this is not going to be following along with the teaching series exactly, uh, but it's a great resource in the home uh, for parents to help their children dig into the scriptures. Um, so please avail yourself of that if you're looking for a good resource uh, for young children in the home uh, guided by their parents. Uh, second resource, this is a book, Jesus the King and a companion workbook uh, that many of our community groups are going to be using uh, this fall season to walk through the gospel according to Mark. So whether you're in a community group or not, this would be a great resource to pick up. Uh, again, in our weekly newsletter, you can find a link to this resource. Uh, we encourage you uh, to pick up that book, Jesus the King by Tim Keller. All right. Well, as we jump into our, our sermon for the morning, I am sure you are all well aware that tomorrow is Labor Day. Um, so we'll start with a little uh, Labor Day trivia. All right. Uh, you'll, we'll, I'm not sure how many of you will know these answers, but I'll give you multiple choice because the answers are harder. All right. So, uh, how many here know when the first Labor Day was recognized as a holiday? Okay, three options: 1831, 1887, or 1925. All right. 1831, 1887, or 1925. Uh, who here thinks it's 1831? Some? Few. How about uh, 87, 1887? Few more. How about 1925? Even more. All right. Well, it was 80, 1887. All right. Yes, I know. I know. It was uh, fairly early. And one more trivia question. Uh, which state first recognized uh, uh, Labor Day as a holiday? Uh, first, we have Oregon, or Oregon, depending on how you want to pronounce it. We know this one correct way. Uh, secondly, New York, or third, Massachusetts. So who thinks it was Oregon? A few. How about New York? How about Massachusetts? Again, it was Oregon. Yes, how about that? I know. Now, uh, now that you all are, have your sights focused on Labor Day, uh, what I want to talk about is labor. It is work. Uh, and we're going to consider a passage of scripture, Psalm 127, that gives us uh, God's perspective on our work. All right, great, great passage. I'm going to invite you all to stand with me. I'm going to read this passage of scripture. After I read it, I will say, thanks be to God. I'm going to say the word, I'm sorry. I will say the word of the Lord. You all res will respond, thanks be to God. And then I'll pray. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame, when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for being a God who communicates, who wants us to know you and wants us to know how to live. 
And Lord, ultimately, we know you want us to know how we can be made right with you through your son, Jesus. So God, I pray today that you would open our ears to hear from you, open our eyes to see your goodness. God, make our hearts uh, soft to the movements of your spirit. So use your word this morning to form us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Well, in this brief psalm, uh, the author references uh, three different arenas of work. Right, three different areas that we, we labor in. Uh, first reference, the building of a house. And then secondly, watching over a city. And then the third, raising of children. I thought about having another uh, interactive time and voting which one was hardest, but I decided not to, all right? Uh, let's consider these three arenas of work first. Uh, first, building a house. I mean, think about all the work that goes into home ownership. Just think about, from beginning to end, all the work that goes into owning a home. I mean, the initial work, whether you're the one that built the house yourself or had the house built, or whether somebody, an owner prior to you had the house built. It's a ton of work for a house to be built. You know, the clearing of the land, uh, the, the site work, the digging of the foundation, the pouring of the foundation, the framing, uh, the roofing, drywall, Cabinets, counters, flooring, electrical, plumbing. I mean, the list goes on and on. All the work that needs to be done for our houses to function properly. It's a lot of work to build a house. It, it, then it's a lot of work to pay for a house. I mean, a lot of our income goes to paying for our homes. We work hard so we have places to live in. And then think of all the work that goes into maintaining a house. I mean, if only houses were just done and there's no maintenance required, but things break. Uh, weeds grow. I mean, there's a lot of work that we put into our homes. A lot of labor goes into houses. But when the psalmist here talks about building a house, I really think he has in mind more than just a physical structure. Now, certainly it's a lot of work to build a physical house, but I really think he has in mind something more. Um, we use the phrase, uh, making a house a home, right? And I think he's really talking about a home. That we don't just long to have a place where we can lay our head down and stay out of the rain. We long to have a home, a place of belonging, a, a place where there is safety and comfort and love. Um, and for a house to become a home, there's a lot more work that has to be done than just the building of the physical structure. I mean, even little things like seasonal decorations or meals gatherings with family and friends, there's a lot of work that goes into these uh, aspects of making a house into a home. And I think we all long for a home, a place of belonging. I think God has wired it into our hearts to long for home. Therefore, we work hard in many different ways building a home. The psalmist then turns his attention and he, he looks at the arena of watching over a city. So first building a house and then watching over a city. Now, many of us that live in New Hampshire have a somewhat negative view toward cities. You know, often people come to New Hampshire to get away from the city. Uh, but the Bible actually has a very positive view of the city. We're often concerned about all the city problems that are in cities, but the Bible is concerned about what the city is supposed to be. And when you look through the scriptures, you see a lot of very positive portrayals. Uh, I don't have it on the screen, but Psalm 122 is a whole psalm about the glory of Jerusalem. 
about Jerusalem being this place where God and his temple dwells and being a place where right judgments are made, where there is peace, where there is security, where there is flourishing. And so the psalmist finishes, pray for the peace of Jerusalem because the psalmist loves the city, that Jerusalem has a special place in God's heart. Um, I, I think the cities in the Bible are, are loved or portrayed positively because they're always portrayed or usually portrayed as being places of security, places of flourishing, and places of worship. Now, that is corrupted by human sin, but the way that God designed things to work is that cities will be places of security because walls are built. Uh, Proverbs actually says, you know, like a city without walls is a person without self-control. It's a negative portrayal, is that if you don't have walls to protect you, any invader can come in. So a city is secure because there's walls to protect against invaders. Also, cities are places where there can be flourishing. People are gathered together. There is, there is more culture. There is more relationship. There's more help one to another because people are in close proximity with one another. And uh, there is worship. The temple was in Jerusalem, the city. And so we see this positive portrayal of the city. But because of human evil, the city needs to be watched over. The city needs to be guarded. The city needs to be cared for so that there will be security, so there will be flourishing, so there will be worship. I mean, just think of all the work that goes into watching over our cities. Really, I have in mind here our nation. Think of all the work that goes into watching over our nation so that our, we can live in places where there is security, flourishing, and worship. I mean, I'll just reference a few areas of work. I mean, this is the work of police and military trying to ensure security. Uh, this is the work of medical professionals trying to care for those who are hurting so there can be flourishing. The work of teachers, you know, wanting us to have an educated population because that's, that's how people flourish best. The work of business, business starting, business flourishing. Um, communities fall apart when business falls apart. Uh, the work of politicians, working for, for laws that are just. And then the work of citizens who watch over the politicians, right? There's a lot of watching over that happens. Uh, matter of fact, I think that an awful lot of what we do, uh, especially in a political cycle, as we watch uh, news reports, uh, as we read uh, newspapers, there's a lot of watching over that we do because we want our communities to be places of security, of flourishing, and of, wor oh, and of worship. Therefore, we work hard in many ways to watch over the city. And then lastly, the psalmist references the arena of raising children. Think about all the work that goes into raising children. And for those of you that have had children, you know, but even if you haven't had children, um, you, you see uh, what's happening in other families. You've been a child yourself, and you're part of a larger community where there is children. Um, just think about this. Like when a child's first born, cannot change themselves, feed themselves, clean themselves. We are doing all that work as parents and as caregivers. It's a lot of work to care for a child in the early stages. And then it's easy sailing from there, right? No work after that. Uh, no, they, they head into school. And you're helping them with homework and, and providing discipline and teaching. Uh, you're driving them all over the place to their different events. I mean, a lot of our work is given to the caring of our children. And then we head into the teen years. And it's a different kind of work. 
as they're beginning to gain independence and we're, we're working to instill values and, and wanting to launch them out and they have their own growing, burgeoning will and there's a lot of work that happens as parents are looking to hone uh, the child's character to launch them well into the world. And even after our children become adults, there is still work parenting adult children. There is a lot of work that goes into parenting. And the question is, why do we do all this work, especially as parents? Why? Well, I think we all just instinctively want our children to grow up well. We can't help as parents but want them to be safe, to be successful, to grow up to be good people who are godly. We want that for them. Therefore, we are very willing to put in a lot of work because that's our desire. So we see here these three arenas that we work hard to build homes, places of true belonging. We work hard to establish cities, places of peace and security. And we work hard to raise good and godly children. But the main point of Psalm 127 is that without God's work, our work is in vain. Without God doing the real work, the true work, the work beneath our work, all our work is in vain. Our work to build homes, to have secure places of, secure cities of peace and prosperity, and to see good, godly children launched into life. All our labor is in vain apart from God's work. So what does the psalmist mean, uh, in vain? Uh, he uses that phrase three times in this psalm. Their labor is in vain. Well, have you ever, ever done a job um, that you put a lot of effort into, a lot of time into, only to have um, it not materialize, it not work out? Uh, maybe some of you, before the days of cloud computing, can remember working on a, a term paper or a, or a book report or something, and you put a lot of hours into it, only to have it get lost. Uh, all this work put in, and it didn't matter, you had to start over and write it again. Uh, it's incredibly frustrating to have that happen. That, that's working in vain, all your work with nothing to show for it. You know, or maybe you've worked on a building project or a project in, on your home, and you realized after completing it, you did it the wrong way, and you had to redo the job. Hours and hours put in, in vain. We hate working in vain. We want our work to, to matter. We want our time to be, to be worth it, to be worthwhile. So certainly, as we are looking to build homes, places of true belonging, as we are looking to, to have cities that are um, secure and flourishing and at peace, and as we're looking to raise good and godly children, the last thing we'd want in these important arenas of life is for our work to be in vain. So, what do we do? Is the psalmist telling us, well, don't bother trying hard because it doesn't matter anyway. Is that what he's saying here? You know, God's going to do what he's going to do, so kick back and take it easy? <laughs> Far from it. We are called to real work, hard work, but it's work trusting in God's work. So this is what, what I want to consider in the remainder of our time. How can we work with God at the center of our work? And the first thing we see here is we need to work with the right motivation. If our work is not going to be in vain, if we're going to work trusting in God's greater work, then we need to work with the right motivation. And the psalmist here in verse 2 actually highlights uh, a wrong motivation that I think is just so common, we just naturally think this is the natural motivation for our work. In Psalm 127.2, 
The author said, it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. It's the picture here of a person working harder and harder to accomplish what they want, whether it is building up a house, whether it is the watching over a city, whether it is the raising of their children. They're getting up earlier and earlier in the day, staying up later and later, because they're trying through their effort to accomplish what they want. And the author characterizes their work as working to eat the bread of anxious toil. It's quite the phrase, eating the bread of anxious toil. That work he's now calling toil. And if you don't know already, that's not a good sounding word for work. If your day at work was considered toil, it was a rough day. So he's saying, work's gonna be hard when this is your motivation. So what's the motivation here? When your motivation to work is simply, so I can get bread, so I can get what I think I need or what I think I want, then our work will inevitably become anxious toil. But this is how we all just naturally think of work. We think we work to get what we want and need. We think that work is all about compensation. So therefore you look for the job with the most pay, the best hours, so we can get the most. Now, there's nothing wrong with getting what we want, okay? It's just that if that's our main motivation for working, work will become anxious toil. Because we're depending on ourselves rather than God as our provider. See, when we go to the beginning of the scriptures, what we see is that work actually existed before sin entered the picture. Work is not a product of the fall. Um, toil is a product of the fall. Work going badly is what happens after sin enters the picture. But God made human beings and put them in the garden to work before there was ever sin. And he didn't put them there to work because they had any kind of lack, because they needed to, to provide for themselves. God put them in a garden that was overflowing in abundance. There was no lack. So their work was not for the purpose of compensation to get something so they could provide for themselves. Their work was for the purpose of reflecting God's character. Human beings are made in the image of God and God's a worker. And in God's work and his creation, we see his character revealed. And human beings in God's image, now we reveal God in, in our work. Whether that is work building a home, whether that is work watching over a city, whether that is work raising children. Our main purpose is to not to get something for ourselves. It is to reflect who God is to those that we are working alongside. We are to reflect his character in our work. And then secondly, the purpose is meant to be contribution. Our work is a contribution to the common good. That as we contribute what God has given to us to others, we are trusting God provides our daily bread. He is Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. So our work is not primarily about us getting what we think we need and want. It is meant to be about us reflecting who God is and contributing to the good of others, which is a radically different motivation than what we commonly see for work. We must remind ourselves again and again, God has called us to work to reflect him and to contribute to the good of others. He will provide for our daily needs. When we work that way, we don't find ourselves caught up in anxious toil. Anxious toil is the result of thinking work is all about compensation. All right, second thing, if we're gonna have God at the center of our work, we need to also, um, hang on a second, oh there it is. 
Lost my place for a second. All right, we need to work with the right expectation. So first, work with the right motivation, and now work with the right expectation of God. You know, as you go through this psalm, it, it seems that the psalmist is very confident that God will build the house. God will watch over the city. You know, God will raise up these children to be launched well into life. His concern isn't, will, will God come through? His concern is, will human beings trust God? But I find that I'm quite the opposite. Naturally, I'm kind of doubtful about whether God will come through, whether he will do the work that's necessary so that I could really have a home of belonging, so that the city will be secure, so that my children will be raised and launched well into life. And therefore, since I kind of doubt his ability to do his work, I put it all on myself and strive and stress to work well to accomplish these things. I'm kind of putting the expectation onto myself rather than the expectation onto God. Um, in the New Testament, we see the Apostle Paul in the middle of a prayer um, have some amazing words about his expectation for God to do what only he can do. In Ephesians 3.20, we read this. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. Let me read that again. Now to him, to God, who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. What, the, what Paul is saying is, God can and will do far greater work than we can even imagine. That, that God is the real mover and shaker of life. And so the question is, do we believe this? Because if we really believe that God can and will do far more abundantly than we could ever do, then the natural response is prayer. If we really believe this, we'll ask all the time. God, will you do what's necessary for me to have a home of real belonging? Will you, will you do what's necessary in my workplace, in, in our cities, uh, in this country? Will you do this so that we'll have security and peace and flourishing? God, will you work in my children's lives so they can grow up to know you, so that they can grow up and be secure in you? Uh, if we really believe this, prayer is the natural response. Now, uh, this past month, uh, Wendy and I have been praying about a couple things. Uh, well, we've prayed about more than a couple, but, but the, these two things in particular uh, we've been praying about, and uh, one was for one of our children, uh, a certain request for one of them, and one was for um, a friend of ours for their child. And um, this month, God answered both of those prayers in such a clear way, uh, ways that I'm not usually used to. Like, it was obvious that, like, I prayed about a specific thing, and, like, the next day, wham, um, God made, caused this to happen. And what I was surprised about was how surprised I was. I was like, wow, I can't believe it. I thought, why am I so surprised that God would actually answer prayer? It's because my heart is prone to doubt. I struggle to truly believe God will do far more abundantly than all we can ask or imagine. I think one of the most important things we could do to work well, trusting that God is the one who does the real work, is lean into our work primarily being prayer. That everything we do is bathed in prayer in our workplaces, as we're you know, in our home, um, working in the community, coaching in the community. Prayer is the response of a person who's trusting in God to do the real work. So work with the right expectation of God. And then lastly, we need to work based on a certain future. 
We need to do our work here and now based on a certain future. Uh, again, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes about this motivation uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. And he says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Do you hear? He's calling us not, not to do half-hearted work. He's calling us to full work, to give ourselves to the work that God has entrusted to us. But he has a motivation there. He says, because you know that your labor, your work in the Lord is not in vain. How can he say that? I mean, when I look at life, it sure seems like a lot of work is done in vain. I mean, a lot of things I work on to have a home of true, a place of true belonging falls apart. Or I'm inadequate to really bring it about. Or when it comes to watching over the city, when I look at our country, and there's, things are a mess. And I think, my word, clearly work is being done in vain. Or when I think about our children. Uh, our children are not always safe. Bad things happen. And our children don't always grow up to be good and godly. So how can Paul be so confident that our work in the Lord is not in vain? Well, he's basically, uh, this verse here is written at the end of 1 Corinthians 15. And 1 Corinthians 15 is a whole chapter about the resurrection. That if the resurrection happened, if Jesus was actually raised 2,000 years ago, then what happened to him will happen to all of us who put our faith in Jesus. That resurrection is our future. And if resurrection is our future, we have a sure and certain hope. So he's talking about the future here. He's basing his hope on the future. And what we find as we continue through the pages of Scripture to the very end, we find that we have a future home. We have a future city. And we have a future family. In Revelation uh, chapter 21, verses 2 and 3 and 7, uh, we read this. It says, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them. He, they will be his people. God himself will be with them. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. This city, this future city, is God's home on earth. And, and therefore, it's our true home. The home we actually long for. Yes, God gives us the, the blessings of home now. But no home, no matter how beautiful it is, will ever actually satisfy us. We'll always find ourselves longing for a greater place of belonging. This is why, no matter how nice a home you got, it's always appealing to have another one. There's always something more we could want because there is another home we all want. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you push your faith in him, this home is not in question. This is your future home. And we see that this home is there because God will be there dwelling with us. And that it's not just a home, it's a city that is descended from heaven. And this city in this text is perfectly at peace and overflowing with beauty. Uh, as you continue to read chapter 21, it's a wonderful description. 
In chapter 21, it says that this city, in this city, the gates will never close. And why it says that, it says that because there is no crime. There's nothing to corrupt or to disturb the peace within that city. So there's no need for doors to shut people out. It says later in this text, in this chapter, that the glory and the honor of the nations will be brought into it. Every good thing from every nationality, from every culture, will be present in this city. You know, the best of foods from all culture, the best of celebrations brought into this city. The architecture will be stunning. I mean, the description in chapter 21, it's like over the top. You know, walls built out of every jewel imaginable. Um, it is a place of immense architectural beauty. And then, I think best of all, we're told no tears, no pain, no death in this city. Totally peaceful and secure. And if, you have trust, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, this city is not in question. This is your future. So we have a home that's unshakable, a city that's unshakable. But then lastly, we're told that in this city live the children of God. That God himself, he says, will bring his children together. The true family that we all long for is there. And so we have this sure and certain hope in our future of the home we long for, the city we long for, the family we long for. And when we put our hopes in that future, what it does is it frees us up in the present to work open-handedly. So whether or not our work produces exactly what we want it to produce in the moment, our future is not in question. Talk about a freeing motivation for our work. So this week, as you head into your places of employment, as you work on your homes, as you labor in your families, as you even work in the, the larger community in which God has placed us, let the sure and certain hope of your future in Jesus Christ anchor you and drive you and motivate you to work fully under the Lord, knowing your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful uh, that you are a God uh, who has done the work, the true work, uh, that is really needed for there to be peace. Uh, Lord, for there to be belonging, for there to be flourishing. Lord, uh, we know that when, when Christ came, uh, the work that he came to do was accomplished on the cross. And at the end, we heard the cry, it is finished. Lord, we know the work has been done that we could never do. Uh, Lord, we could never pay off uh, the debt that we owe. We could never do the work to make ourselves the people we should be. Uh, Lord, you have done this work. We thank you and we love you. And God, I pray this week for all the, the work that you've called us to. We thank you for this work. God, I pray that you'd enable us to be able to work well, uh, to work fully, and uh, to work trusting in the work that only you can do. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.